Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Last time we were together, which I guess was Monday, was that Monday? Yeah. Does that seem so long ago to you? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we just went on this retreat yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Brian texted me yesterday and he said, "You know, I, I'm really sorry I can't make it uh, with the group." And I said, "Don't worry about it. We've got enough <laughs> with Molly." So, anyways. Um, <clears throat> So where we left off on Monday was uh, the Buddha was offering some mental states um, that we could uh, look at, like uh, we focused a little bit on lust um, as an example, um, but the last one he mentioned was um, noticing a concentrated mind when the mind is concentrated and noticing an unconcentrated mind when the mind is unconcentrated. And I want you to keep in mind when you're hearing this that the word mind can be translated as thinking, as attitude, as the quality of one's heart, um, <clears throat> as the ecology of our body. That's why some... Is it possible to shut one of those windows? Yeah. I just feel a little bit... Um, unless, does everybody need the window? Do you, no? Okay. Um, uh, where was I? Oh, oh yeah, just that's why when I'm guiding meditation, I'm trying to um, continually keep you attentive to what's happening in this ecological system of the body. And uh, you probably notice that sometimes just certain anatomical cues will strengthen your concentration. Um, so um, I encourage you to keep this in mind in your own sitting, especially when you start exploring like what's happening in your mind, that that word can, because of the metaphor of the mind and how we think about it in our culture, can um, uh, bring us to this body map up here between the ears. And that's not the only way you need to think about mind. So for example, um, you'll notice that when your attention's really distracted, your breathing is very coarse. And when your attention is stabilized, your breathing is very, very fine. And in many uh, old yoga texts, they say that um, the key to knowing that the mind is concentrated is when you stop breathing. And it doesn't mean you literally stop breathing, but it means the breath becomes so shallow that you don't know that you're breathing anymore. That's how quiet your breath becomes. And uh, many old yogis used to do a practice in corpse pose where they would lie down 
and they would settle their minds and then they would notice their breathing in their belly and then they would notice the breathing in the nostrils and then they would start to follow the breath just outside the nostrils until their breath became so shallow outside of the body that they'd stop breathing. So we're going to work on that together. But uh, I sometimes have trouble getting people to start breathing again. So I lose a few students every year <laughs> doing that exercise. But we'll try it together. Huh? Um, but the takeaway with um, looking at the relationship between the mind and the breath is that sometimes when we want to settle our mind, we use our mind to try and settle our mind. <laughs> yeah, like we talk ourselves into settling our mind and it, it doesn't really get it doesn't really get the mind to settle you know so we're going to the other end of the stick which is the breath and when you keep working on settling the breath and some of you have made me hurt some of you have probably heard me say that meditation is a physical practice when you settle your breathing, the mind settles. Now, <clears throat> I don't know that much about neurophysiology, but, um, and I'm sort of making this up, but this is my own theory. My theory is that when you're distracted, your breathing is deep because you need more oxygen in your brain. Because when you sit, you notice that the longer you sit and the more settled your attention becomes, the quieter your breath gets. It gets so quiet and so fine. And then as soon as you get distracted again, right away, it's a one-to-one -one relationship. Immediately, your breath gets coarse again. Right? Because it seems like maybe the brain needs to have more oxygen to start. To, I mean, I'm making this up. You could, this could all be complete bullshit. But, I, but this is my theory. That your brain needs more breathing to start to get all that uh, imagination functioning again. Okay, so <clears throat> why this is important for meditators is that it's really wonderful, thank you to your body for making your breath coarse again. Because if you got distracted and your breath stayed fine, you wouldn't find it. So you can do this, you can, so you can be a grateful meditator and when you get distracted, and you notice your breath is coarse, you could just go, oh, thank you. <laughs> and then you can find your breathing again. I just have a question yeah. about that, because it's kind of um, opposite of what we call physiologic data. When we're uh, to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, it's a longer, deeper breath. So longer, deeper exhalation. Yeah, it's a deeper breath, it's not a shallow breath, and that when we're sympathetic or parasympathetic, it's shorter. Yeah. That's how you do it, so you don't activate it with the depth of your breathing. But I know what you're saying, like I, I recognize it. Yeah. It's not so much the depth of the breath as it's the fineness and the coarseness, yeah. right? Like the... My, my experience of it, so this is physiology aside, but my experience of it is that we don't really have two nervous systems. Mm. I feel like there's one nervous system, 
and it includes both, mm -hmm. and that your ner both nervous systems are controlled by your breathing to various degrees. Mm -hmm. And it's also really interesting that a lot of the functioning of the nervous system happens around T12. And what else is at diaphragm. T12? Your respiratory diaphragm. So, like, your respiratory diaphragm is really like the heart of your nervous system. And it would be really um, beneficial if when you sat down, instead of thinking, I'm working on my mind, you thought, this is my physical practice today. <laughs> and then when you do your physical practice, you're like, this is my psychological practice today. This is my mind practice today. That I'm going to go running and be really focused on the anatomy of the running so that when I finish running, my mind will feel really good. Does that make sense? Yeah, so your asana practice or your weightlifting practice or whatever is um, your mind practice. And your sitting practice is your physical practice. Does this sound reasonable? Yeah, and then you'll notice things like your diet really affects your physical practice of sitting. Your sleep really affects your physical practice of sitting. So, so that's how we're going to treat the physical practice. So our route in to mindfulness of the mind is through mindfulness of the body. So I'm trying to underline that sequence. And we start settling the mind by settling the breath. Now, yesterday, or Monday, we also talked about karma. There's a wonderful sage named Padmasambhava. And he said that, um, he said, even though my mind is clear like a vast sky, I pay attention to karma the way I give attention to the grain of barley, a grain of barley flour. So let me, okay. So even though your attention gets stabilized and is becomes, your mind becomes vast like a sky that can hold anything. So even though the mind is that big, he pays attention to karma like he would give attention to the grain of barley flour. Now I've never, um, uh, Vitamixed barley before, <laughs> but I Vitamix oats all the time to make pancakes. So, a grain of oat flour after a minute in the Vitamix is how small? Tiny. <laughs> Pretty tiny, right? Fragment. Yeah, just tiny, tiny. So, Padma Sambhava is saying even though your mind gets really big when you're sitting in practice, you should also really pay attention to karma in detail. So what that means is every action has an effect and causality is very complex because different pieces in the ecology have different density. And because they have different density, they're going to affect each other in different ways. You see? And so in this kind of ecological reality, everything affects everything else. Um, and uh, in Buddhist philosophy, this is called a non-decomposable system. This is considered a non-decomposable system. So what that means is we see ourselves embedded in a net where everything affects everything else 
and nothing in the net can decompose. Kind of like when you flush something down the toilet, it doesn't go away. <laughs> right? It's in our ecology and it's in us. Whatever you flush down the toilet, whatever you put down a sewer, is going to move through the water system of our bodies. You know, in Los Angeles now, they don't want kids under the age of six drinking city water because they can't get all the pharmaceuticals out of the, the water system. And this is greatly affecting the hormone levels of young, young kids. So that's one of the reasons why there's so much marketing nowadays around not flushing your meds down the toilet, not putting them in your septic tanks, you know, and taking them to be decomposed. Oh, I don't know what they do with them. They take them away. <laughs> yeah. um, a non-decomposable system. Yeah. So, um, so why I'm mentioning this is because when you start to look at thinking, you start to see the effect of thinking in your whole physiology. Okay? And I'm not even talking about your community yet. But just in you, you start to notice that an unconcentrated mind has real physiological effects. And a concentrated mind has real concentrated effects. And my reading of the third foundation of mindfulness is that what the Buddha is trying to say here or suggest you pay attention to here is karma. Is that when you pay attention to an unconcentrated mind, um, it reinforces an unconcentrated mind. Sorry, when you're just in an unconcentrated mind, it reinforces an unconcentrated mind. When you start paying attention to an unconcentrated mind, it starts creating a concentrated mind. Right? Like before, you were just letting thinking go everywhere and letting images go everywhere. Mm -hmm. And if you're an artist, you probably convince yourself, oh, this is really good for my art practice. But then, if you're really honest and you look at how your thinking works, it's not that creative, right? It's like if you're a musician and you want to create a new, new, do you compose music also? You want to create new music. Well, you start working something out, working something out, working something out, and very quickly you'll recognize, I've done all of this before, like this is all vocabulary I know. And you have to keep doing that and keep doing it and keep looking at, so you're doing it, and you have to keep saying, oh, this is not fresh, this is not fresh, this is not fresh. So you're noticing the habit, and then if you keep staying with it, something starts to shift in your attention where you can then be open to something new. But the first phase is always this phase of um, stealing what you know already. Yeah. And what's that? Yeah, and you can feel it. You can, you can feel like, oh, this isn't fresh, this isn't fresh. So, let's review the key insights that we did the other day. Uh, mind states are not inherently fixed. Whatever's moving through your mind, whatever's moving through awareness, is a mental state that's not fixed. It's part of a changing ecology that has to do 
with digestion, with breathing, with temperature. Um, Various conditions give rise to various thoughts. Most of our thoughts are quite repetitive. This is really boring. And the Buddha has a term for this. He calls this samsara, which uh, teachers will always translate as conditioned existence. And I usually translate samsara as meaninglessness. Because that's what it feels like. When your mind is constantly repeating the same old stories, your life doesn't feel like it has meaning. Number two, you can hold mental states lightly. And that's why I said in the guided meditation this morning, notice how much weight you're giving your thoughts. Did anybody connect with that? And and it's like, whoa, oh. Number three, all moods, all mental states are phenomena. They're not who you are. They're just who you are in that moment. But they're not ultimately who you are. When David Bowie died, I spent a while on YouTube watching interviews with him over the years. Um, And there's a really great interview. I don't remember who the the name of the person uh, who interviewed him, a British guy. Uh, The interview is in 1999. You could probably try and find it. And um, in it, uh, he said something really interesting, which is that um, one of his projects since the the mid-'70s has to... uh, So I don't know how many of you know David Bowie's career. But he had many, starting in the mid-60s, he had many reinventions, right? And this was kind of like his art form was very much around identity. And he created characters that he then embodied, and he sang from that character about that character. And um, then most of that kind of stopped uh, when he quit drugs. (laughs) And... um, So what he was talking about in this interview was how when he stopped making music around a character and identifying with the character, he noticed he became much happier as a person, which is really interesting. So like critics and cultural theorists love talking about David Bowie as the guy who changed some of the culture's attitudes around um, identity. But David Bowie, in this interview, was saying something completely different, which is when he stopped thinking so much about like, how he was doing that with his identity, um, he became a much happier person. It's kind of interesting to think about. So mental states are phenomena. They're not who you are. Nothing is who you are. We want everything to be who we are. <laughs> but it's not who we are. And lastly, uh, all this is good news because the punchline is you can change your attitude. You can sculpt it. You can train your heart. You can train your heart to hold mental states more lightly, to hold thinking uh, lightly. And some of us, we identify so much with our moods 
And as we get quiet, we start to see that mental states are not really as interesting as we really thought. What's more interesting is to see how the mind operates. And that's why I was trying to suggest in the guided meditation, like the most interesting thing is actually just go back 20 rows and just look at thinking. Like just look at that process. Like if you really want to know how your mind works, just like get back and like just look at it. Just look at it. Look at that movement. Um, what's your mind interested in? Like just, so you see what I mean? So it's like we're not like in the details. We're like looking back and we're saying, how does the mind work? What is our mind really interesting, interested in? And what is our mind trying to do? Which I'm going to get to. Um, are these strategies, I'll just finish this list, but are these strategies helpful or unhelpful? And am I free? Like psychologically, am I free? Is this practice liberating me from stress that comes from um, unhelpful thinking? Um, yes, Remington. Just when you're when you're watching thoughts from a distance, isn't that sort of thinking about how you're thinking, and, and therefore it's still a type of thinking? Like meta awareness is still a thought. Like so, I just don't see how when you're when you're thinking about how you're thinking, how you're going to settle. Like in that meditation just then, I wasn't settling as much as when I was just focused on my breath, because I was like, oh, I'm watching my thoughts. And I'm now thinking about... You're not thinking about how you're thinking. You're interested in how you're thinking. What's the difference? You're just noticing thinking. But the noticing is not taking the shape of the thinking. When you think about thinking, your attention is taking the shape of thinking while it's noticing thinking. When you're aware of thinking... It's like a mirror, and thinking is moving in front of the mirror, but the mirror is reflecting thinking. So in the old text it says, there's a lake in the mountains, you're standing by the lake, and the geese fly over the lake. And when the lake is very still, you see the reflection of the geese moving across the lake. Okay? When the lake is really choppy, you see chopped up versions of the geese. Okay? So when you're trying to think about your thinking, you see chopped up versions of reality. What we're doing in practice is we're trying to create the conditions for the lake to get really still. So there's a mirror, and in front of that mirror, thinking is happening. Okay, so when you go back, or to use another metaphor, when you go back those 20 rows, you're not commenting much. You're just interested in thinking. And this is called Vipassana practice. Right? So here's the thing. So this is the limit of shamatha practice. So the problem with shamatha practice is you can't do Vipassana. The problem with shamatha practice is it calms you, calms you, calms you until you're really calm. And nothing's moving. So you can't get any insight because there's no movement. You can only get insight when there's some movement. You see? 
And that's why, like, if you study the Yoga Sutra or even the Buddha, like, they always say, like, all those really cool levels of concentration that you can explore as, like, mental Olympics, they don't give you insight. Because you need movement to have insight. So you're watching thoughts, you're very still, noticing the thought process, and you're having some insight into thinking. Like, oh, dukkha. Or, oh, God, yeah. Like, like, what happens when you train every day sitting still, coming back, coming back, coming back, and you keep noticing how some thoughts that seem so solid, do you know what I'm talking about? That, like, this is reality, only feel like this is reality because they're here. They're here stuck on your skin. And so... Like, your job in the meditation is, like, <laughs> doing this to just, like, try and see them with some distance until things calm down. Right? And the problem is, is, like, when the thought is here, the only way you can deal with that is heroin. Like, you, like... How else could you possibly deal with that? It's like it's all over your face. Like you have to have some kind of drug that like numbs you cognitively. So that's not happening. Right? So what we're saying is, okay, notice that you need a drug. And you can fill in whatever drug your drug is. Like you need a drink. So that, because like maybe one of the reasons we go to the bar or I guess if you need a drink, you don't even have to go to the bar. One of the reasons you, you go for a... You can tell I'm not a drinker, okay? <laughs> one, of the things you, one of the reasons why you go for the drink is because you're just trying to get that to happen. Yeah. Right? And not on your face. Like, on your whole body, you're just, like, trying to get, like, a bit of space. Right? Um, so, I don't know. That's what we're doing with meditation. Like, if someone says, isn't meditation your drug... You can be like, yeah, at the beginning it feels like that. Like I'm just like kind of um, 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 what is, I, I'm just working really hard to just find an inch, to find an inch of distance from those thoughts that seem really solid um, to my awareness. But and over time, awareness stabilizes, stabilizes, stable, and becomes more mirror-like. And then, so here's the cool thing, is if awareness becomes more mirror-like, thoughts become more fluid. You see? Thoughts become more fluid. And then you start to see um, how, th how thinking works. This is the third foundation of mindfulness. I hope you're seeing why you needed mindfulness of the body to get here. Mm -hmm. and like why this sequence is important mm -hmm. so there's a lot of, every single person has a question this is, oh, I, this, is, this, is, this is like how it's like how you know how um, robins see worms they can robins have the ability to you know how we see anything is by um, by by the movement of uh, the cones and rods in the back of our mm -hmm. eyes and mm -hmm. the images are always moving mm -hmm. but the way that Robins see 
worms moving in the grass is that they can still their their retina so completely that mm. everything disappears except what's moving. Mm. So let's not talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So then that's all that they see is the movement because they have such mm -hmm. still, they can do that still. Mm -hmm. Where was the next question? Yeah. I feel like the opposite happens for you when practice The opposite. Yeah, I feel yeah. that as I'm sitting, my thoughts are becoming more stuck to my face and overwhelming. Uh-huh. And like I'm not carrying for Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm wondering that is this like a phase and does it like always have to get forced? Uh-huh. So, um, is it related to physical sensations, or is it just the mind is? Yeah. And you? I'm sorry. The mind stuff is just really churning. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if you had a student come to you and say that, what would you tell them? What would you suggest? Let's just try it. So imagine you had someone come to you and 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 say this. What would you say? Well, you know, you can't, you can't look at something and investigate it if there's no shamatha there. So I would say that if somebody has like a lot of mind stuff going on, probably I wouldn't introduce like inquiry into that so much. Because first you want to get them stable. Um, so what are the ways you can help them get stable enough that they can, like sometimes our minds are really crazy. Okay, and you can't control that insanity sometimes. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? So what could you do to keep the student encouraged to stay and to stay working on the stability of awareness, even if the mind's really, really crazy? Staying in the body? Yes. What else? Compassion, I'd start with. Compassion, okay, compassion. I think I would go back to like, the, if they're noticing the breath, and yeah. then if able to, and then maybe that feeling tone thing. Yeah. And like some lab labeling of it, like that, just maybe bring it back to the body and the yeah. breath, and try to simply do that. Uh -huh. That's intense uh -huh. you know, for somebody. What about, what about like, Running as fast as you can for 10 minutes before you sit. What about like yelling? What about like shaking? What about 
Like, what about a ritual before you sit? That's that's um, more energetic than the thinking. Like, uh, can you think of anything that's? I dance pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, sometimes when. Um, I have that kind of stuff going on in my mind. I don't do any kind of subtle practices like yoga or anything like that. I lift really heavy weights. <laughs> like if I notice, I'm like, okay, it's been three or four days and my mind's like really busy all the time. I'll say to myself, you need to do something with your body that's more intense than the thinking. And so um, kettlebells. And, it, and it, it helps so much. So that's why, so the reason why I'm trying to follow this a little bit is that I want you to think about your response as being physiological. Like, what can I do in my body to really ground my mind? Part one. And we can talk, talk more about exactly what's going on for you, but generally, I would say that. The second, and everybody's suggestions were great. Oh, and with compassion, because you can also, like, I'm going to lift kettlebells and like, <laughs> just kill myself you know? <laughs> or whatever, right? And, and then you get hurt, right? Okay, so the other thing is, what happens if you have a meditation practice and you have a phase where this stuff's going on and you can't, you know what I mean by this stuff? And like day after day you sit and you can't get any space from it. Yeah, what do you do? Oh, what do you do? Can you go for just a walk, a mindful walk? Mindful walk? Like focusing on yeah. what's around you instead yeah. of what you're thinking. Yeah. yeah. What about just like being with that, like we talked about the other day, right? Like intentionally being with that discursiveness and, and, and noticing that rather than you know, constantly trying to let it go. Yeah. Just, you know, mm -hmm. being with that discursiveness, but being, paying the same level of attention mm -hmm. to it as you would. If you have, yeah, these are all really good. It's not exactly where I was hoping we would go. Oh. But if you have really high levels of anxiety, mm -hmm. you have symptoms of trauma, you have something going on in your life right now where even though you know how to work with your mind, it's just a disaster. There is nothing wrong with pharmaceuticals, okay? So when I have students and I hear them really trying to practice, but they can't, like, they know what it is to get from here to here, but they can't get from here to here, and it's like really going on for a while, I recommend um, pharmaceuticals. And like it's not hip to talk about in meditation circles because we're supposed to be anti-pharmaceuticals. But like I see time and time again that somebody takes the right thing for them, everything settles down, they start to practice again, and they get back uh, their life again. So this is what I listen for sometimes with students around um, whether or not pharmaceuticals would be a good idea. 
is that they're trying. They're really trying, but like there's a big heavy quilt over the whole thing and it's like immovable. And when that's the case, if you leave somebody there, but they're still really trying, eventually they'll go back to drinking again. And they'll start smoking again, and they'll start doing stupid things. So that's why I say to people, um, you should go see your doctor. Where do you live? Oh, I know a doctor in that area. Here's the name of somebody. They're also a meditator. they might be able to give you some short-term ideas or prescription or whatever. Yeah. I guess a precursor would be to maybe suggest some therapy or going to see a therapist. Like you are a therapist, so like I would, I personally would never say. I'd say go get talk to someone or like if there's not a lot of resources in Tofino, but yeah. there's definitely a lot of people that show up that are. Yeah. Going through some stuff. Yeah. You know, but, um, Most of my students are in therapy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they've already heard that one. Right. So <laughs> that's why I'm like, there's nothing wrong with, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, this is also true for people with insomnia. It's like, great, you've tried every single natural thing and you're listening to celestial <laughs> whatever to sleep on YouTube all night. Now you should take a drug and break the cycle for three or four nights. And oftentimes, it's the magic bullet, and it works. We all could get easily into a discussion about the problems with pharmaceuticals. I'm not going to go there. But there is a place, and it needs to be um, unshamed for meditators who feel like they can do everything by themselves. because they believe they have that mythology that everyone's against pharmaceuticals. And so if, if they can see that your attitude is embracing, that you do something, you do something cognitive, you do something meditation as well, they'll be far more respectful of um, this whole way of, of helping people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I see it all the time. People don't want to take take drugs, but just for a little while, they can just stay yeah. with the hormone levels again. Yeah. The dopamine, whatever, yeah. makes a huge difference. Yeah. And then if they're doing this as well, they can't believe that and come back to that. How yeah. wonderful yeah. is that? Yeah. It's pharmaceuticals and like, you know, especially with antidepressants and all those, they were meant to be more for acute and for shorter term, but that was never suggest. like it's not often told to a patient so they're because it's in moments of crisis they're given it and they're pretty much given the diagnosis you need to take this forever but really they were designed to actually be for acute cases and you take it for a period of time it stabilizes you you start then being able to do all those things that you need to do to stay well and then you slowly go off and what happens is now people are just staying on and and then 
of course, it's becoming dependent and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So yeah, so I don't want to get into yeah. this. I don't want to go negative on pharmaceuticals right it's now because we'll be here for yeah. a long, long time. Yeah. But there is a place for pharmaceuticals. There's a really important place for community. Um, and as we're going to explore in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, um, our practice is to turn towards suffering. Okay? When all this stuff is going on, do you know what I mean again? Yeah. That's not turning towards suffering. That's just suffering. Right? And so you need to sometimes look at your experience and say, am I able to like turn towards what's happening and reduce reactivity? Or am I just suffering? It's not the same thing, you see? And that's why in the first two foundations of mindfulness, we're getting closer, 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 closer to breathing in the body. And third foundation of mindfulness, we're using that stability to back up a little bit and go, oh, thinking. And we're going to talk about more strategies of how to work with that. Then, if someone's doing this and they realize there's all kind of cognitive distortions or pressure or weight happening that they just can't find any existence from, maybe they're not going to solve that with mindfulness of thinking. Maybe mindfulness of thinking is only going to be one piece of a healing puzzle. So um, I just want to underline that. So I want to keep going because we're halfway through. Um, so one question and then we'll have just like a two minute stretch and then we'll keep going. Karen. Thank you very 